Again, it is our privilege and our delight and our joy to uh, be again in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever uh, proclaimed or preached. And if you'll look there in the sixth chapter of Matthew, we're in the disciples' prayer in particular, sixth chapter of Matthew, verse 12 is our uh, text for this morning. As we uh, hear the living word of God for our hearts, for our souls, for our strengthening. The one who preached this sermon is the one whose hand holds us. He is our Lord and our Savior, and we bless his name. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I'm using a subject for this verse, pardon for sins. A three-letter noun defines a reality of the human race. That noun is sin. It in fact infects every baby born into the world because sin is passed down to all of Adam's descendants. We have a sin nature. Sin has corrupted and is corrupting. It is has polluted and it is polluting. Sin is the bane of human existence. All we need to do is look around and you can see the troubles that sin has brought to bear in the world. Sin's power is destructive in life and it brings eternal ruin to sinners. Scripture is clear about man's sinful condition as is the sun shining at high noon on a summer day is clearly visible to all sighted people. It's clear in Scripture man's spiritual condition relative to sin. During the dedication of the temple he built, Solomon prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, for there is no man who does not sin. Later, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote in the 7th chapter and the 20th verse, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 3 expands on this theme. It says, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And afterwards, they go to the dead. That caps it off. Evil and insanity. Insanity or madness is knowing that what one is doing is a violation of God's word and will bring, unless there's repentance, judgment, yet does it anyway. This is spiritual insanity. This is madness. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9 says this, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Obvious answer. It's a rhetorical question. is no one. No one can pure his own heart. It is from the heart as well that evil thoughts, word and deed, comes according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 15. I want to encourage you to really grasp that. When you look at the world and you see the deterioration, the depravity, the sin, the wickedness, do understand it comes from a sinful human heart. 
It's not a sickness. It's not the environment. It is from a wicked heart. Men do what they do to other men because they are sinners. You have to get that point in your mind. Do not let the world make you think that it needs to be something done external to man that will make man better than man is. No, it's a heart problem. It's in the heart. And until the heart is fixed, man can't be fixed. You need to grasp that. As Christians, you need to have the proper view of the world. And our worldview comes from Scripture. And Scripture is clear in delineating man's problem is his alienation from God because his heart is wicked. And he needs a new heart. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, is dedicated to showing that all are sinners and are unable to save themselves. Romans three twenty three in that portion of Romans that I just mentioned, it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Scripture establishes the universality of sin in the human race. And we need to understand that, you know, it doesn't matter where you go on this planet, you're going to find some sinners. Because wherever people are, are breathing and acting, there you find a sinner, Right? the universal nature of sin in the human race. I've already alluded to it. Let me say it again. Man cannot repair himself spiritually. Only God can meet his need. Forgiveness is needed. Forgiveness is required. Man is a sinner. Man has sinned against God. Man needs forgiveness. Otherwise, sin and its consequences temporally and eternally remain. When we come to this portion of the word of God, give us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Jesus is teaching us who are disciples, his disciples, Christians, that we're to petition our father in heaven to forgive us of our debts. Give us of our debts. Now you notice in verse 12, uh, the verse starts with and. Don't overlook that. That's an important conjunction here. And it's at the beginning of the verse. With this use here, it is as if our Lord is saying that the life sustained by physical necessities, bread, which we have prayed about in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, uh, that's not enough. You need more than material things for your life. There is a spiritual necessity. And for us as believers, he said, and forgive us. Also, give us the bread that we need. Give us the material things we need to sustain our life. But also, we need forgiveness. Pardon us, Father, from our sins. Pardon us because of our transgressions. Our spiritual life depends on it. Our relationship with you, our communion with you depends on it. So forgive us. Not only give me something to eat, but also forgive me of my sins. Now, I I think the Bible is, uh, in fact, I know the Bible tells us about the nature of sin. It uses different words to define sin. Because you can just say the word sin and have a general idea about sin, but not knowing all that the Bible has to say about sin, defining what sin is. 
they're different words, and they help us. One word for sin is harmadia. Harmadia means missing the mark. There's a mark, a standard there that God has set, a perfection of his own character, uh, which is reflected in his standard. Man, man misses it. There's another word, transgression. Transgression. And we see it in verse, verses 14 and 15 here in Matthew chapter 6. That word transgression denotes to take a false step, to slip, to stumble, or to fall. The term likens sin to a lack of self-control necessary to stand up. Sin is to be out of control. To be swept away by impulse or passion. It highlights the sinner's impotence and inability to keep God's law. When Bible talks about transgressions, it says this sinner, the sinner, does not have it within himself to keep divine law. He is swept away. He's out of control. He misses the mark and he's swept away when he transgresses. There's another term, and it's found in 1 John 3, 4. It says, it's everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Divine law is violated every time a person sins. God's pronouncement of what is right and righteous is violated every time a person sins sins. Now in our text, there's a word for sin. Another definition. And you see it here in verse 12. Debts. Debts. Debts define sin as an obligation. A failed obligation. Sin is a failed obligation owed to God. We owe him moral obedience. We owe him obedience to his word. Whenever we sin, we fail to meet the obligation of obedience. When you sin, at that moment, you become indebted to God. In fact, every human being, when they first sin, the very first time as a child even, your parents told you no and you said yes. Debt. And that was our condition before salvation. Remember in Matthew 5, 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is talking about our spiritual bankruptcy. All people born of Adam are spiritually bankrupt. We owed God a debt that we could not pay. We were without spiritual resources. Every time we sinned, our debt grew. We just kept digging ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper in the hole. And that is precisely what an unsaved person is doing. They're sinning against God and they're piling up the debt, piling up the debt, piling up the debt. The problem is they can't pay it off. So the definition of sin 
tells us, it shows us that sin is missing the mark. Lacking self-control and being swept away. Being lawless regarding God's law. Failing to meet the obligation of moral obedience to him. So regarding sin, it either needs to be pardoned or it will be punished. It will be pardoned or it will be punished. That's it. Either forgiven or punished. That's the way it is. Jesus tells us and forgive us our debts. For the believer, there are two aspects of forgiveness. You need to understand that two aspects of forgiveness. Judicial loss addresses the relational aspect of forgiveness for the child of God. Forgive us our debts in the relational sense is possible because of the judicial sense. Because of the judicial component, which I'll explain in a moment, we're able to pray this prayer and forgive us our debts. Believers have received judicial forgiveness. Jesus here is not talking about judicial forgiveness. He, in this text, he is talking about relational forgiveness. But you have to have the judicial forgiveness before you can have the relational forgiveness. With judicial forgiveness, God acts as judge of all the earth because he is. Because he is the judge of all earth with regard to the Christian or disciple's sins, they are forgiven in total. Our sins, past, present, and future, are totally forgiven. With respect to eternal judgment, we never have to face it because God, who is the judge of all the earth, in his judicial pronouncement, he has declared that you are forgiven forever. You say, where do you get that preacher? I'm glad you asked. Because that's something you want to know. You want to know, am I free of potential condemnation, right? Amen. I couldn't go to sleep at night not knowing whether my sins are forgiven or I still retain them. I need to know, am I clear with God? Amen. Romans 8, 1 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no judgment is coming for those who are in Christ Jesus. What this means is when you're united to Jesus Christ by faith, that spiritual union means that you will never, ever at all face judgment. The judge of all the earth has decisively and permanently forgiven Christians' sins. That's good to know, isn't it? It's good to know that you don't have to go when you die and worry, am I going to face judgment day? There's no judgment day for believers. The judge of all the earth is taking care of it for us. Now, it needs to be understood that in forgiving our sins, God does not overlook, ignore, or wipe sins under the proverbial rug. He can't do that. He is a holy God. He is a just God. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor on those who deal treacherously. End of quotation. He is holy and he's just. 
And he must punish sin. He just doesn't let people walk away scot-free. Say, that's okay. I just love you so much. I'm just not going to worry about your sins. You've offended me. And you've sinned against others. All of that. Ah, let it go. God can't do that because God is just. He must do what is right because that's his character. And he will do what is right. He will exercise justice. Romans 3.26 says that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a fascinating reality. God retains his justice even as he justifies those of us who are sinners, who have come to faith in Christ. He remains just at the same time he justifies or declares righteous those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. How can the judge of all the earth do this? How can he retain his justice, his righteousness, his holiness, and yet declare us righteous? He doesn't, I'm going to tell you this right now, he does not compromise his justice. He does not abandon his holiness. But he does punish sin and he justifies all who trust Christ as Lord and Savior. How does he do this? That's another good question. God does this by the sacrificial, penal, substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He punished our sin in him. Jesus Christ is our substitute. And he dealt with our sin in him. I, did I not tell you he doesn't sweep it under the rug? God has to punish sin. And in the Old Testament, it was alluded to earlier in the prayer and opening. It's quite clear uh, that that's been God's plan all along to deal with it through a substitute. Our sin, that is, Isaiah 53. The text that teaches the reality of this, it says in verse 5, let me just, a couple of them. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53 says this, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What this text in Isaiah was prophesying is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ upon whom God would put our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions on him and he would satisfy God's holy demand against our sin by paying them in our place. That's the gospel. So God retained his justness and justice because he did punish sin. He punished it in the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Old Testament sacrificial system, when you read it, you go through the Old Testament, you see the offerings of the lambs, the offering of the goats, you see all of that. What that really is, is those offerings symbolize forgiveness in the rituals. Symbolized forgiveness. Actual forgiveness didn't come until Jesus Christ came. All that's symbolic. God's saying, I I'm going to forgive and I'm giving you pictures of the forgiveness that's going to come because the lambs are substitutes. 
that they die in your place. And then you get forgiveness. Your sins are covered. But there's one coming who will take all of your sin. He will take care of it fully. And it will be actual forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 18 teaches this. It's clear. Now in the book of Ephesians. The first chapter. Verse 7 says this. In him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, that is his death, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In fact, God forgives us who are believers because Christ died in our place. In the book of Colossians. There's another statement concerning this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. The apostle writes here, similar language to Ephesians 1. It says this, when you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having, verse 14, cancel out the certificate of debt. Ah, you see that word debt there. Certificate of debt. We owed God an unpayable debt for violating his law. And because of Christ's death on the cross, he canceled it. The bottom of the verse, verse 14, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Nailed it to the cross, a metaphor for forgiveness what he did and forgiveness what God does that word forgive means to send away it means to dismiss it means to hurl away in Micah 7 19 the text was read earlier in the service uh, it figuratively speaks of God hurling believers sins into the depth of the sea at the moment of salvation Now, let me stop here and say something. People cannot be forgiven of their sins unless they trust Christ as Savior and Lord. God does not forgive anyone's sins against him unless they come to his son. No other way. He forgives sin apart from Christ. Hell is populated by unforgiven people. Everybody in hell is unforgiven. If they were forgiven, they wouldn't be in hell. They died in their sins. Conversely, everybody in heaven are forgiven people. When saints get to heaven, we're going to look at each other and give Christ glory, give Father glory, and bless God, the Holy Spirit, because we are forgiven people. That's the only way you get into heaven. You don't go there any other way. You've got to be forgiven, and the only way you can be forgiven is through the blood of Christ. His death on the cross. When you've trusted him, then God forgives you, and then you're on your way to heaven. The judicial forgiveness, God won't judge you and send you to hell. So heaven will be just a place where there's immense love for our Lord and all the forgiven saints of all the ages. 
And let me tell you, judicial forgiveness has been available since the fall. The Old Testament saints, they believed God. They believed his forgiveness, which was based on the certain coming substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. They believed. They were justified because they believed God. But the question naturally arises as to why here. Now notice it says here, and forgive us our debts. Well, why do we ask for forgiveness since our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven? The answer is the second aspect of forgiveness, as previously mentioned, relational forgiveness. Let me tell you a couple of things right away. First of all, our sins do not terminate our salvation. You need to get that. You don't sin. I was at a place one time and they said um, they believed you could lose your salvation. They said if you lie, you fry. It rhymes, but it's nonsense. When God has declared you righteous, when he's declared you justified, he intends that to be the reality for you forever. Because Romans 8, chapter 30, it says we're glorified and we're not yet glorified. That is, in heaven where we're perfect. And since he speaks of it in the past tense, that means it's going to happen. Our sins do not terminate our salvation, but they do affect our relationship with God negatively. Sins that we commit, that's why we need to ask for forgiveness. They disrupt our communion. They disrupt our fellowship. They harm our relationship with God. You can't be close to him, walk with him the way you would like if you don't deal with your sin. If you don't ask him for forgiveness, act like you're okay. Just walk around, I'm okay. No, you're not. That's why Jesus said, and forgive us our debt. He teaches us to do that because we sin and we need to be forgiven, right? Forgiveness of sin, asking for it is to be a routine in your life as a child of God. You have to acknowledge what you've done. Don't pretend you didn't because you know you didn't. In case you didn't, God knows. So quit trying to fool somebody. And that closeness won't be that joy. There won't be that communion when there is sin in the life, when there's unforgiven sin in a relational sense. You can't walk closely with him in joy. You say, oh, preacher, uh, why would you say that? I'm going to tell you, I know somebody who could tell you about it. May I tell you about him? There's a man named David. That man wrote scripture. He was a king of Israel. Sweet psalmist of Israel as he is called. A man after God's own heart. But you know what he did with Bathsheba. Not only did he commit that sin with her, but he also had her husband killed. He He just ran through all the commandments and broke them all. And David walked around for a while uh, acting as if everything was okay. And it wasn't because he was messed up psychologically. He was messed up physiologically. And then he decided, you know what? I need to get this right with God. In Psalm 51, he asked God to restore to him the joy of your salvation. He didn't say restore salvation. He said the joy of it. David lost the joy of of the salvation that God had given him because he had not confessed his sin. 
He's walking around like everything was okay. And he knew it wasn't. David acknowledged it against you and you only have I sinned. And by the way, let me tell you something. This is for free. When you sin against a person, a person, say, in your family, in your church, wherever, do understand that ultimately you're sinning against God. You need to think about that. People can be cavalier in their relationship with people and sin against them and act like no big deal. And God said, uh-uh. You've sinned against me. Not just them. See, it's God's law that you've broken. You've violated his law. You've dishonored his character. And forgive us our debts. We have an obligation that we didn't meet. David confessed his sin and was forgiven. And guess what? The joy returned. The joy returned. Maybe that's you this morning or now afternoon. Maybe you're here. You're, you haven't really acknowledged your sin. You haven't addressed it. You're a Christian and you're acting like everything's okay. And you wonder why things aren't going well for you. You wonder why there's a lack of joy and lack of interest in spiritual things. It's because of your sin. Sin will desensitize you to spiritual things. It will make you spiritually sluggish. You won't desire God. Because you've got sin in your life and you're not dealing with it. Therefore, you feel estranged from him. So you're really not interested in hearing his word. You're really not wanting to worship him. The songs don't mean much to you because, you know, you got this problem called sin that you haven't confessed. You need to be forgiven. If you're a Christian, you have judicial forgiveness, but as a Christian, you need relational forgiveness. Jesus taught about this ongoing need for cleansing in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. When he washed the disciples' feet. We're all familiar with it. And Jesus was teaching profound truth here. And I'm just going to skip through here and a couple of things pull out to apply to our, what we're addressing this morning. And Jesus was going to wash the men's feet, the disciples in the upper room, the evening that he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion on the cross for our sins. And so he's preparing to do that in verse 8 of John chapter 13. Never shall you wash my feet, Jesus answered him. Peter said, no. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. What Jesus is saying, only those cleansed by him have a relationship with him. Only those cleansed by him have a relationship with him. And the washing, let me tell you, washing is a common biblical metaphor for spiritual cleansing. The Corinthians, for example, they were washed. There's the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Washing always refers to spiritual cleansing. It's a metaphor. To be cleansed judicially is what happened to us at salvation. Jesus said in verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. 
Let me stop there to semicolon. What he is saying here is that they were cleansed at salvation. The moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were cleansed from the defilement of your sin. Up in that point, you were dirty spiritually. You were bathed. That's what Jesus means here. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Feet cleansed, symbolizing confession and daily cleansing of those sins that disrupt, disrupt the fellowship between the saint and the Lord. That's why you need to confess your sin. Jesus is teaching this. And he goes on, let me just throw this in, verse 10, the bottom of the verse says, and you are clean, but not all of you. Uh, the, not all of you, that one exception, disciples, obviously, is Judas Iscariot, who was not cleansed by salvation because he never was a true disciple of Christ. He was a phony, a devil, Jesus said. Now, pardon from the Father. Next point, and we're going to hasten on here, I think. Uh, yeah, we will. Our, our pardon of others. Notice in verse 12 of Matthew 6, it says this, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The relational aspect of forgiveness turns toward those who have sinned against you. In this world, I'm going to tell you something, it's inevitable that people will sin against you, right? Amen. Sinful men will sin against sinful men. Just understand that. You need to get that. You can't live in a world that's following, following people and not have somebody sin against you at some point. And I bet you all of your money. <laughs> not mine. <laughs> that you've been sinned against by somebody here recently. What are you going to do about it? Jesus says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. See, what Jesus is saying, uh, when you're coming to ask the Father, forgive me, be sure you're forgiving others who have sinned against you. You're saying, Father, I've sinned against you, so would you forgive me? And Jesus said, also, while you're saying that, also, Father, I forgive those who sinned against me. Why do you think Jesus wants us to do that? Because he doesn't want us holding grudges, being vengeful. Developing a bitter spirit against others. Um, Jesus is not wanting us to be a bunch of little uh, dirty hairs. Make my day. No. The Father forgives. The Son forgives. The Trinity forgives. And if we're going to be like God, we have to forgive. In the body of Christ, you're to forgive one another. Be tenderhearted, kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Ephesians 4.32. We're to forgive people outside the body of Christ. Forgiveness. One more thing. You'll notice it's weird to forgive those who've incurred a moral debt against us because of their sin. They've violated God's law. We're to forgive them. But Jesus then gives additional insight in verses 14 and 15. 
And we're going to look at this so we can uh, put a bow on this and close this message up. Verse 14, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So, whoa, I thought he had already forgiven us our sins, past, present, future. What does this mean? What he is talking about here is relationally. When we forgive others, God will not withhold the cleansing that we need. You forgive us. Verse 15, but if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. He will hold the forgiveness from us if we withhold forgiveness from others. He intends for us to be forgiving people. Part of your growth in Christ's likeness will be will demonstrate itself in your forgiveness of others. Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus again is teaching about prayer. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Very important. What if I don't forgive, you say? Well, I say, well, I'm going to heaven anyhow. I ain't going to hell, so I'm just going to hold this grudge. I'm going to just, like candy, and I'm not, it's a hard candy, I'm just suck on it. Suck. Bring it back to mind. I'm just going to do that. Because I'm going to heaven. Uh-huh. So you're going to disobey God and hold on to your grudge. You're a vengeful spirit. Oh, you are, are you? And the fathers are going to say, well, you know, what can I do with them? They just won't, won't do what I want. I, I've, gonna, I've saved them. I'm going to bring them to heaven. But I just, you know, some kids are just like that. There's nothing you can do about them. Uh, I'm going to tell you something. It's not how it works. In Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. I can't preach this whole passage now. It's too late. Time's exhausted. (laughs) But let me give you what's going on here. In the kingdom, one slave went to the king and said, forgive me, it's unpayable debt. The king said, fine, I forgive you. He walks out and a far, 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 far less debt was owed to him by another fellow slave. He said, no, I ain't forgiving you. And the other slaves saw that and they told the king. What Jesus is teaching here, just look down in verse 34, 33. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Jesus applies it. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. If you do not forgive your brother, your fellow believer from the heart. The Father will turn you over to the torturers. What that means? Chastening. He will not let you go blithely on your way. 
He says, oh, you won't forgive, will you? I'm going to discipline you. Because I desire holiness in your life. Righteousness in your life. And you can't be holy and righteous, practically speaking, if you refuse to forgive others. I don't care how you look holy, how much of the Bible you read, how much you wave your hand. And if you're not forgiving other people, you're not practicing the holiness, the righteousness that God requires in your life. And God will chasten you to get you to do what he wants you to do. How will that work out in your life? I don't know because God knows how to chasten us all. It's tailor-made for each of us. All I know is I don't want to experience it. It's just better to obey and experience the joy of walking in the truth and reflecting the character of Christ. Let me conclude. Without judicial forgiveness, I've said this already, I need to say it again. One cannot have a relationship with holy God. One does not enter into the kingdom of God, does not possess eternal life, and will never see heaven if one doesn't have judicial forgiveness that comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. God does not forgive anyone who refuses to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. There can be no forgiveness. You have to turn to him. You have to trust him. He's the only one that can forgive you for the sins that you have committed against him. And he's provided that forgiveness through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will turn to him, you can receive the forgiveness. You can receive the, the washing, the cleansing that comes in salvation. You have a new life. Follow Christ. We invite you to do that today. For believers, our responsibility is to be forgiving people. We're to look like Christ, look like God, act like them. And when we do, we're like them. And that pleases our Father. That pleases our Savior. And the Holy Spirit will help you to do it for his own glory and praise. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you for your truth. Um, help us as perhaps to the mind of here is, has surfaced some person or circumstance and they know they need to address it forgive and go forward in a life that is pleasing to you in that regard grant them the grace to do it thank you for the mercy you've extended to us in our forgiveness judicially and relationally may we be a people we're known for forgiveness, looking like Jesus Christ in that regard in our life. We pray for those who need salvation and the forgiveness that comes with it. Pray you draw them to yourself today. Make plain your truths to their hearts and minds. Do, on, do that only as you can. Save them. We trust you to accomplish all of these things in your time, in your will, your way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.